and verse 57. The Bible says, Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with, with her. And it came to pass that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. And his mother answered and said, Not so, but he should be called John. And they said unto her, There is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. And they made signs to his father how he would, be, how he would have him called. And they asked for a writing table and wrote, saying, His name is John. And they marveled all. And his mouth was opened immediately, and his tongue loosed, and he spake and praised God. And fear came on all that dwelt round about them, and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was, upon, was with him. And his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham, that he would grant unto us that we, that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. Father... Bless your word this morning. May we receive what you have for us to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we are tracing the redemption of God through our Savior, this work of redemption, I said before. It doesn't begin at the birth of Jesus, right? It goes before that. It begins with the appearing of the angel to Zacharias in the temple. That was the dawning of the age of redemption. Uh, God had been silent for 400 years. He had not spoken to his people in 400 years. By the way, we draw the parallel, of course, to Exodus, don't we? Jesus is the new Moses, the better Moses, leading his people through a new Exodus, a better Exodus, a permanent Exodus. How long was Israel in, in Egypt for? 400 years. How long were the silent years? 400 years. After 400 years of silence, Zacharias is in the temple serving the Lord, and an angel appears to him and begins to speak to him of the, the one that he would, his wife would bear that would be the forerunner of the Messiah, and that really began the ministry and work of Jesus through John the Baptist. Let's break down our text this morning of this glorious event, this miracle birth. Let's start in verse 57 and 58. Now Elizabeth's full time came that she should be delivered. And she brought forth a son, and her neighbors and her cousins heard how the Lord had showed great mercy upon her, and they rejoiced with her. The full nine months had passed, and Elizabeth had the son that the angel had prophesied that she would have. 
All of her friends gather to witness it, to hear the goodness of God towards this couple who wanted a child for so many years and they couldn't have one. Now they were past, really past the, the time of childbearing and God gives them a son. What a time to rejoice. They have no idea what God is doing. Isn't that funny? A lot of times we rejoice in, in these, these miracles that God does, but we, we don't understand what God is doing. God is often doing something far bigger than you and I can even imagine in these miracles. Verse 59. They came to pass on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they called him Zacharias after the name of his father. The custom passed down to Abraham in Genesis 17, 12. And from him to the people of Israel was to circumcise the child on the eighth day after birth. It was often put off till later, but this couple was God-fearing and obedient, and so they followed the customs that were passed down to them. Zacharias couldn't talk, so they followed the custom of naming him after his father. That custom still exists today. I'm named after my father. George Foreman's sons are all named after him. There's like eight Georges in the family. We still do that today, don't we? We name our kids after ourselves or after somebody else. Benjamin is named for my grandfather. We try to follow that same tradition in the world today. But this was a special birth. This wasn't your run-of-the-mill baby born. And so general customs won't do. His name's not going to be Zacharias. It's going to be John. They're going to say, why John? No one's named John in your family. Let's go on, verse 60. And his mother answered and said, not so, but he should be called John. And they said to her, there is none of thy kindred that is called by this name. In her obedience to the command of the angel, she said he would not be named after his father, but his name would be John. This brought confusion to her friends and family. Customs and traditions were a big thing among the Jews. It was a cultural shock to do what they were doing. By the way, sometimes obedience to God will set you at odds with the culture. Sometimes obedience to God will set you at odds with your family. Right? We're called to obedience. It, it's, it's, it, it, it's hard for us. I think in America we don't have the loyalty, the customs, but in first century Jewish context, this was a scandalous thing. That was a tradition to name children that way. You're just making up a name out of nowhere? But they value their obedience to God. Our job in the moment is to hold obedience to God's word as supreme, regardless of how our culture feels about it. Tatsuo told me a story. I hope you don't mind me telling it here. When he was in Japan, they had a special holiday where everybody feasted like our Thanksgiving. And they and the, the Christians there in that little Christian community said, we're going to, Lord, lead us to fast and pray during this time. What a shock to the culture. You want to be an outcast? Go to Thanksgiving dinner and say, I'm not eating. I'm, I'm going to go in the room and spend time with God. Listen, we are called to obey God, not the culture, not tradition. Okay, tradition doesn't bind us. The Bible binds us. The Bible is our, our, our supreme authority. Even within the church, we don't do things because Baptists have done these things. We do things because the Bible says we do them. Tradition doesn't matter. The Bible matters. Obedience to God matters. What the culture says doesn't matter. 
obedience to God matters. Set that now, because when it comes to that time for you to obey God and it sets you against the culture or it sets you against your family, you need to be ready ahead of time to obey God. Because it's hard, right? We love our families. But sometimes obedience to God will bring division. Your loyalty, my loyalty is not to our relatives. It's to Jesus Christ. Alone. Alone. No, no compromise there. Be ready. Settle in your mind now. I'm going to obey God, not the culture. I'm going to obey God, not tradition. I'm going to obey God regardless of what other people think about what I'm doing. Verse 62, and they made signs to his father how he would have him called. He asked for a writing table and wrote saying his name is John and they marveled all. It would have been the ultimate job of the father to name the baby and they are all amazed when he agrees his name should be John, especially since he and his wife haven't been able to talk this whole time. Verse 64, and his mouth was opened immediately and his tongue loosed and he spake and praised God and fear came on all that dwelt round about them and all these sayings were noised abroad throughout the hill country of Judea and all they that heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, what manner of child shall this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. I always love that term. They laid it up in their hearts. You know what that means? They meditated on it. They thought about it. They thought deeply about it. We need to return to thinking deeply about God. We need to return to thinking deeply about what is God doing? Why is God doing? What does God intend in this? Zechariah spoke immediately after naming him John. This is the fulfillment of the angel prophesied in verse 20 of the chapter. I'm sure that during this time of the pregnancy, he did a lot of communing with God. He couldn't talk to anybody else. God gave him time to Meditate, to think, to ponder. His sin was unbelief, and now standing before him is the fulfillment of the promise, and God opens his mouth and he glorifies God. Those who saw the miraculous birth and the opening of his mouth became fearful. They understood that God had done something in their midst. Remember, God hasn't moved in 400 years, not by prophet, not by divine revelation. I think the only real miracle we see in that four, that I know of in that 400-year period is, is during the time of the Maccabees with the rebellion that went on and the, uh, the oil in the temple that, that remained. But outside of that, we don't see a whole lot of God dealing with his people. And now here we have not only a miraculous birth, but this miraculous opening of this man's mouth. Nine months he couldn't talk. He left to go serve in the temple, fine, and came back home to his friends and neighbors, unable to talk. And now suddenly, with the fulfillment of the prophecy, he speaks and he glorifies God. This was no ordinary child, that's for sure. Verse 67, and his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Ghost and prophesied. I want to pause here for just a second. Zacharias was filled with the Holy Ghost. This means that the Holy Spirit came upon him with a prophetic word. He would prophesy about the work of his own son, but not only that, the work of the Messiah. Because John was only preparing the way for the Savior to come. John and Jesus are so intricately linked. That's why I say the ministry of Jesus began 
at the announcement of the birth of John. You, you can't separate the work. John's preparing the way and Jesus is walking in it. It's all one work that's going on. After so much silence, God was now speaking through angels and prophets. The word he is speaking is that the time is fulfilled. God's covenant with Abraham was about to be fulfilled. The prophecy in the Garden of Eden was about to be fulfilled. Every promise made to God's people over the centuries was about to be fulfilled. God had a set time. God had a specific time. I think, I think it's in uh, Galatians where it says, uh, in the fullness of time, he was born under the law, born of woman, right? The, the fullness of time. Oh, I don't misquote it. You, you can look it up later. There was a right time. There was a set time. There was an appointed time. Church, listen, God has his appointed times. Be patient. Be trusting. When the promise came in the Garden of Eden, you know how long has passed from that time to this in Luke chapter 1? A long time has passed. God didn't delay his promise. God wasn't slacking his promise. God has a time for everything. He has a purpose for everything. Why did you get saved when you got saved? Have you ever, have you, any of you guys ever, don't raise your hands, but have you ever thought to yourself, oh, I wish I'd gotten saved earlier? No. You got saved at the time that God wanted you to be saved. He has a time for everything. You found this church on the, on the week that God wanted you to find this church. You met your spouse when God wanted you to meet your spouse. God has, and listen, the Lord's not like, well, the Lord hasn't come back yet. He has a time for everything. He has a time for his return. He has a time to judge the wicked. God is not letting the wicked get away with anything. There is a time and a purpose in all that God does. And he's right on time. Jesus and John, they weren't born early or late. They were born right on time. Trust God's purposes. Trust that God is doing something. Even if we don't see it, even if we can't with our eyes behold it or understand, God has a purpose and a time for everything that he does. Verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people. What a what a great line to open it with. He begins by blessing the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. I like the way he words it here. The redeemed is past tense. Don't you love that? He has visited and redeemed his people. Can I ask you guys a question? Has Jesus died on the cross by Luke chapter 1? He hasn't. But he's speaking through the Holy Ghost. And as far as God is concerned, the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Our names are written in the book of life of the Lamb from the foundation of the world. In God's mind, redemption was already done. Nothing could stop it. Nothing would change it. In God's mind, it's all past tense. It's all past tense. He has visited and redeemed his people. He's using language similar to Exodus 3.16. Again, foreshadowing. This is the new and better Exodus from the bondage of our sins. Verse 69. 
and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The term horn of salvation refers to the powerful salvation wrought in Christ. The horned beast was a beast of strength, and his strength was in his horn. In the house of David, a servant. This refers to the Messiah coming in the family of David. He'll also be born in the city of David. God promised David that a son would come from him who would reign over the house of Israel forever. And God has kept his promise to David, hasn't he? Solomon was imperfect. Solomon wasn't the son. Solomon died. Solomon sinned. But there was another son coming who he'd raised up within the house of David to sit upon the throne forever and ever. That promise was now coming. Verse 70. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all them that hate us. God had revealed this salvation at the very beginning. I mentioned this, I think, on Wednesday night. Jesus was not a surprise dropped into history. Everything was pointing to Jesus. From the very moment of the fall of man, God said the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. From the very moment of the fall, Jesus is prophesied to come. And then all of the prophets, all of the promises, all of the sacrifices, all of the types and the shadows, the temple, the tabernacle, the water from the rock, the the cloud that covered them, the Red Sea they walked through, everything pointed to this redemption that was coming, that now is here for God's people. Everything had been pointing and leading up to Jesus that was coming. God didn't just drop a Savior and go, oh, by the way, here you go. From the time that we sinned and rebelled, he said, I'm bringing you a Savior. And he began to remind us along the way, by the way, he's coming. By the way, he's coming. Here, he's coming. Here, you can see him in this. You can see him in this. You can see him in this. They didn't, though, did they? Many of them didn't see him. They saw the rock. They saw water. They enjoyed the miracle of the Red Sea, but they didn't believe. Oh, how unbelieving we can be as people, isn't it? How unbelieving we can be. God makes himself plain to us. I have no doubts. I have no doubts that God exists. I have no doubt that Jesus is alive today, sitting upon a throne, reigning. I have no doubts. But how often I doubt God when I shouldn't be. I, I know better. He's proved himself so many times to be trustworthy and reliable and true. And I go on and I, and I doubt. Like Gideon. Lord, make the fleece wet and the ground dry. Oh, that's a good trick. Now make the ground wet and the fleece... Listen, God has done so much for mankind. He's displayed his power, his promise-keeping so many times. Why do we go on and persist in doubt when God has made himself so very clear and trustworthy? God revealed this this salvation from the very beginning. He planned it before the world began. The Bible says the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8. 
Our names are written in the, in the book of life from the foundation of the world, Revelation 17, 8. God himself gave the first prophecy of the Messiah, Genesis 3, 15. Moses spoke of a prophet like unto himself that God would raise up in Deuteronomy 18, 18. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of him in Jude 14, mentions that. Abraham was promised a seed through which all nations would be blessed, Genesis twenty-two eighteen. 18. That seed is Christ, by the way. In Christ, all nations are blessed. You know why? Because all nations through Christ have access to the salvation of God. We say it a lot around this church. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation will be gathered around the throne, praising the Lamb who was slain. What a promise. Can you imagine that promise to Abraham? Through you, a seed is coming through which all nations will be blessed. All nations will have access to God through your one seed, the Lord Jesus Christ. David spoke of him in Psalm 110.1, calling him Lord. Micah prophesied of the exact city of his birth in Micah 5.2. Isaiah prophesied extensively of him, especially of his suffering, through which we would be justified, Isaiah 53. The time would keep me from mentioning prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Zechariah, all who prophesied of the coming Savior. Jesus is not a, a mystery character introduced into the story. The whole story points to him. The whole story points to his coming. At the end of the verse, he says that they would be saved from their enemies and all who hate them. Many of them took that to be Rome, and they thought a political revolutionary was coming. Boy, he's so much better than a political revolutionary, isn't he? By the way, political revolutionaries seldom work out very well, do they? They rise up to rescue the people, and they're sinful men who have their own self-interests to, to worry about. Everyone here thought the Messiah would be a political figure. He'd overthrow Rome. He'd free them from their political oppressors. That's not what God's concerned about. God's not concerned about, I mean, listen, he'll judge those who persecute men wrongly. He'll judge those who oppress the poor. He will judge tyrannical governments. Let me, let me just say that. But God's concern is not politics. God's concern is the souls of men. That's what he has given himself to, is to save men from their sins, men and women from their sins. Politics don't bother God. He raises up whom he will, and he puts down whom he will. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? What a, what a great story of the power of God. Look at this great Babylon I've built. <laughs> nobody can... God says, Nobody? Listen, man, you're going to go eat grass like a cow. And I'm going to bring you back afterwards and restore you to your throne. And what did Nebuchadnezzar say when he got back to the throne? I extolled the God of heaven. I praised the God of heaven. There is no God like him. God's not concerned with politics. Pastor, what are we going to do if so-and-so wins the election? We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to love our neighbors ourselves. We're going to have church. We're going to love and help one another. 
That, that's what we're going to do. Oh, boy. The world feels so out of control. It's not. It's not. God's in complete control. Remind yourself of that. And God did, Christ didn't come to save us from the mean Republicans or Democrats. He came to save us from a much worse enemy than that, our sin. Our sin. Do you know why Republicans and Democrats are so wicked? Because they're sinners. They need the gospel. They need the saving power of Jesus. That's what they need. Jesus didn't come to make us moral. He didn't come to restore the fabric of American society. He came to save men and women from their sins. If we forget that, we've lost the battle. We've lost the battle. Too many Christians have given up the spiritual battle and they've gone into the political battle. Even if you win the political battle, you win it for what? Four years? Even if you restore decency and morality to the American culture, people will still die and go to hell. Our work is the gospel because people are perishing. They're perishing in their sins. Their sins have bound them. They are slaves and prisoners and they don't know it. They don't know it. And they must be set free. That's why Jesus came. That was the promise all along. The seed of the woman, that's Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. That is the one who was holding us hostage. And he defeated him for us. Don't forget that. Or you'll lose your way. You'll lose your way like the Jews of the first century who rejected Jesus because he's not the political leader we thought he would. He was never going to be a political leader. I mean, he is. He's a king. <laughs> he has his own kingdom, but it's not of this world. He didn't come to be king over America. He came to save Americans from their sins. And when you give up the spiritual battle and you go to the political battle, what often happens, what always happens, is you stop preaching the gospel. Don't stop preaching the gospel. Man, I got, I got caught up years ago in that, uh, what was it called? My wife's gone. She, tea Party. Who said that? Ten points. Man, I got caught up in that Tea Party movement years ago. Fortunately, I was just, there's a little too much gospel preacher in me. So I kind of got kicked out because a lot of them were Roman Catholics. They didn't like the fact that I told them they had to get saved. But man, for a while, my mind was on politics. I stopped preaching. We got to fix this country. And one day, God, God's spirit told me, you're not going to fix the country by politics. Because all those politicians, the, the, even the ones you think are good, they're compromisers. They're compromisers. Several of them are Roman Catholics. They're not righteous Christian leaders. They're, at best, moral religious pagans. I got out of that mess. You know why? It has so consumed me that I stopped preaching the gospel. Man, that'll get you, that'll get you turned around. You have to reassess. What am I doing? Many of them thought a political revolutionary was coming. The enemies spoken of here are not political, they're spiritual. 
the devil, the principalities and powers, the law that was against them, the ordinances he nailed to his cross, the world system, their sin nature and death itself. The, those are the enemies that he's talking about here through the Holy Spirit. Verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swear to our father Abraham. The mercy promised to the fathers was the forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament saints, they were saved the same as we are. Okay, If anyone tells you differently, they're lying to you. Okay. Old Testament saints were saved by faith, just like we are. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Their faith looked ahead to redemption. Ours looked back at it. Go to Romans chapter 3, verse 24. Let me show you what he means. He says, the mercy promised to our fathers. Romans 3, 24. Romans 3.24, the Bible says, whom God, is speaking of Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that means a, a satisfactory payment, a removal of the wrath of God, through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Now, uh, there are some out there who will twist this. They believe you can lose your salvation. So they, they'll say, well, God only died for sins that are past not your sins that are future. Let me tell you something. When Jesus died, all of your sins were in the future. You hadn't been born yet. Okay? If you only died for your past sins, you're still not saved. Because you had no past sins when he died. What he's speaking of here is those who died in the Old Testament era, right? That God did not condemn them. He didn't overlook their sin. He didn't let them go. He didn't let them off the hook. Rather, he was forbearing with them in light of their faith in the coming Christ. And so God set forth Christ to be a satisfactory payment through faith, not just in those who would come after him, but from those who trusted who were before him in the past. In other words, he justified them by Christ and applied that to their account. This is the reference to the sins that are past, meaning those who were sinners before Christ came. He promised them mercy, and now that mercy was here. Go back to our text. To remember his holy covenant, he says. I think implied here is the covenant that existed in the Godhead to save a people before they were even created. I think that's the covenant he's talking about. Before God even made mankind, within the Godhead, there was a covenant made to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to save and redeem a people for themselves, for himself. But I think application can be made here as well to the covenant he swore to Abraham. God covenanted with Abraham in Genesis and obligated himself to uphold the covenant. I love this story. I, I repeat it a lot. I understand that, but I want you to understand, right? When the covenant was made in the Old Testament, you killed an animal, you cut it in half, and you both walk through the animal together, pledging, I'm going to uphold my end, you're going to uphold your end. When God made a covenant with Abraham, what did he do? He killed the animal, he parted it, and then he put Abraham to sleep. 
and then God by himself walked through the animal. You know what that means? God covenanted. He, he committed himself to both sides of the covenant. In other words, nothing that was promised relied on Abraham. He completely relied upon God. Your salvation, my salvation, is not a partnership between you and God, or me and God. God does his part, I do my part. Our salvation is all of God. He promised it, he secured it, he applied it. Right? Christ died for my sins. The Father, through the Spirit, drew me to Christ in my salvation. We love God because he first loved us. He obligated himself to this covenant, and he has kept his promise to us. Nothing in your salvation relies on you. If you think that this morning, get that out of your mind. It's all God. All of it. All of it. From the, the, the redemption aspect, it was all God. That's why Paul tells the uh, Galatians, right, when they're turning back to the law, he says, how are you justified? Were you justified by the law? Then why are you turning now to perfect yourself by that which couldn't justify you? If you were not justified by your works, how can your works keep you saved? If they couldn't save you, they can't keep you saved. If your works couldn't commend you to God, they can't keep you with God. Even our good works come from God. They come from that new nature that God is working out in us. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God that works in you both to do and to will, to will and to do of his good pleasure. Why do I will and obey God? Because God's working in me to do that. That's why. My repentance came from God. My faith came from God. For by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Nobody will sit in heaven and go, oh boy, I'm so glad I had so much faith. I'm so sad my wife didn't have faith. I guess I was just better than her. And God was smart to save me because I'm better than her. Nobody's going to say that. We will all sit around heaven going, I can't believe I'm here. I don't deserve to be here. And they're going to be like, I don't deserve to be here either. Why are you? I don't know why we're here. We're here because God is kind and merciful and gracious. And he chose to be kind and merciful and gracious to us. He's not partnering with us. He's rescuing us. We need to remember that. The great mercy of God. If you've never been dead... You'll never appreciate resurrection. If you've never been dead, you'll never appreciate resurrection. People who lose their excitement about their salvation, that might be a sign they were never saved in the first place. They're still dead. Dead people appreciate resurrection. They're joyful. They got joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, the half has never yet been told, as we sang earlier. I was once dead, and now I'm alive. I was once in sin, held a slave, and now I'm free. Not by works of righteousness that I have done, but according to his mercy, he saved me. How does that not bring joy? 
How does that not bring song? How does that not bring rejoicing in the Lord? If your rejoicing in the Lord is gone, you need to remember your first love. Remember who you were apart from Christ. Remember who you were when Christ saved you and look at who you are now. Do you love Christ today? You didn't back then? Then praise him for that. Do you walk in righteousness today? You didn't back then. Praise him for that. Are you going to heaven today? You weren't back then. Praise him for that. The joy of the Lord should lead us. Sorry, the work of the Lord should lead us to the joy of the Lord. Because of what God has done for us. Let's go on. Verse 74. That he would grant unto us that we, being delivered out of the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. This calls back to the first exodus when Moses wanted to lead Egypt to serve the Lord in the wilderness. The purpose of being delivered from our sin is not to go on in sin. It's not to use grace as a cover for our sins. Well, I'm under grace, not law, so I can sin as much as I want, and God's okay with it. I'm living in sin, but you know what? I've asked Jesus to be my Savior, so therefore I'm okay. If you're living in sin... You're not saved. If you're okay with sin, there's a problem in your heart. If you're using grace as a cover for sin, you don't know grace. You've not received of the grace of God. The purpose of being delivered from our sin is not to go on in sin, but to walk in holiness and righteousness. We can now serve him without fear of punishment. All of God's wrath against our sin has been put upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Too many people today serve the Lord out of fear. Fear God's going to punish them. Fear God's going to do this or do that. I've heard preachers say over the years, make sure you're giving to the Lord. He'll get it some other way. He'll break your car. He'll set your house on fire. And oh, they serve the Lord with fear. Oh, I better do this or God's going to set my house. No, he's not going to do that. He didn't, he didn't die so that we'd serve him afraid of him, but that we'd serve him out of love and thankfulness, freely serve God. Our service to God flows from a heart of thanksgiving. And there's, a, there's a lot of Christians who believe that there's still wrath reserved for them that God is still trying to punish them. Let me tell you, they're denying the fundamental truth of Romans 8.1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that today? There's no condemnation. You realize that God has no condemnation for you? There's, no, there's nothing left. Jesus took all of the condemnation. He took all of the punishment. He took all that was due to you and me. There is nothing left for God to give us. Verse 76, and thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways. Zacharias now turns his attention back to John. He'll be called the prophet of the highest, a true prophet of God. It was a big thing back then. They'd had no prophet for many years, no prophetic word. Now, here's a prophet of the highest. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We'll see the prophecy. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. 
written 700 years before John was born. Isaiah 40, verse 3. The Bible says, The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. By documenting Zacharias' use of Isaiah, he is emphasizing the fulfillment of the prophecy and the inspiration of the prophet. Remember, I'm teaching this whole book under the idea that Theophilus is not a Roman, but a Jew, a Sadducee, who would have rejected the book of Isaiah. And over and over again, we see Luke pulling from Isaiah, demonstrating the truth of the prophecies in the book. Go back to our text. Luke chapter 1, verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. John would give the knowledge of salvation. The true mission and work of the Messiah had been lost. They were expecting a political revolutionary, political leader. John would regain for the people their knowledge of the true Messiah. I think a good application of this verse can also be seen in John's work of calling the Jews to repentance. The Jewish nation had gotten to the point where they believed they were clean. They didn't need to repent. Only the Gentiles needed to be cleansed. Only the Gentiles needed to repent. So John comes to Israel and says, bring forth fruit and meat for repentance. Come be baptized. There's ritual cleansing. The Jews didn't do that. They didn't believe they had to be baptized. John says, you too are dirty. You too need to be clean. You too need to be saved. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Through the tender mercy of God. What an apt description of our salvation, isn't it? Through the tender mercy of God. If you're redeemed this morning, it's not through your goodness, but the tender mercy of God. The day spring from on high has visited us. This will be literally true as God comes in the flesh to visit his people, to walk in the temple, to teach face to face the ways of God. He comes to give light to those that sit in darkness and to guide them in the way of peace. I'm kind of summarizing the end of that verse. Verse 80, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit was in the deserts till the day of his showing unto Israel. The child, that's John, grew and was strong in spirit. He was in the desert, meaning the deserts of Judea, until the time of his showing to Israel. This would prevent anyone from accusing him of having attended the schools and learning. He's coming from the desert, having learned nothing, with the word of God. A true prophet of God. He'll be demonstrated by his... Say, why was he in the desert for so long? To demonstrate to the people that what he's saying wasn't learned, but rather given to him by the Spirit of God. That he is a true prophet. When he came preaching the power and knowledge with which he spoke, it would be evident that God was with him. Our application this morning is a reminder that salvation is brought to us through the tender mercy of God. We do nothing to earn God's favor. God did not look on you and go, hmm, 
Brother Tatsuo, he seems like a great guy. I think I'll save him. Debbie, she has so much faith. She chose me first, so I'm going to choose her back. <laughs> That's not what God did. God looked down and saw Tatsuo and saw Debbie and saw Rick and saw nothing but our sin and depravity and said, I'm going to love them and I'm going to save them and I'm going to redeem them and I'm going to make of them a new person conformed into my own image. That's why we're saved. That's why we're saved. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus took the condemnation. If you're saved this morning, you've received a gift given to you by God. Now what are you doing with it? Are you using it to serve him? To love him? To love others? To tell others the gospel? So many people are received this gift of salvation and they just sit on it. They don't do anything with it. It seems to make little difference in their life. Listen, salvation isn't getting your ticket punched to go to heaven like a train trip. Got my ticket punched, put it in my pocket, live however I want. That's not biblical salvation. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that new creature, he can't stay inside. He has to work his way out. And he should be working his way out in each of our lives. We also see a reminder that God has kept all of his promises. He can be trusted by virtue of his past faithfulness. God keeps his word. We see that God has visited his people, not to punish, but to show mercy. Today, God dwells within us, bringing us into conformity with his own image. John was preparing the way in a few weeks. We'll be coming to the passage that speaks of the coming of the Savior. The Messiah, the promised one, the one who would stand in the place of his people under the wrath of God the Father and take every ounce, every ounce of what was owed to us. Listen, Bethlehem is not, that's not the emphasis of the story. It's the gateway to Calvary. In Calvary, that's where it all happened. That's where God's promises were all fulfilled. And mankind was redeemed through the virtue and righteousness of Jesus Christ, whom John was preparing the people for. We'll see that in two weeks. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this time in the Word this morning. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. You're so gracious to us. We are so undeserving. And yet you condescend to us. You... You come alongside us. You weep with us. You comfort us. You encourage us. We have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but you were tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. We have a listening ear and a powerful Savior. May we come with boldness, having received the mercy of God through Christ Jesus. We thank you for this time in the word, Lord. We thank you for this service thus far. Bless the offering to come in Jesus' name. Amen.